please join us as we discuss Episode 3 of Bewitched, It Shouldn't Happen to a Dog. After Darren's client makes a pass at Samantha, she turns him into a dog and then loses him. Bewitched, bothered and Welcome to episode three of Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, our podcast about magical and supernatural sitcoms of the mid-60s. I'm Frank. I'm Molly. And you're joining us for a very interesting episode, the third episode of the Bewitched series. We're going to give you a small synopsis. Rex Barker, a maker of baby food, is a potential client for the ad agency. Larry Tate and Darren Stevens hope to win him over at the Stevens dinner party. But Mr. Barker is interested only in Darren's wife, Samantha, who does her best to resist his advances. Unfortunately, Barker manages to get her alone out in the gazebo and corners her. Sam is forced to take drastic action. She turns Mr. Barker into a small dog. Darren is furious to learn that the pesky pooch that has suddenly shown up out of nowhere is the baby food man with a half-million-dollar account. He refuses to believe Sam's explanation about what happened and demands that she change him back. Wow. This was a really provocative episode. And I worry watching it if it was as provocative to viewers in 1964 as it was to us. Let's start unpacking some of this. Molly, please talk a little bit about your first impressions. So all week long since I watched this episode, I've been calling it the rape episode. Fair Uh, enough. Very rapey. Oh my gosh. Very, very rapey. And I hate to say this, but a little (laughs) Trumpy. Just a little Trumpy. (laughs) It is amazing. And it really challenges because this was my favorite show. And I learned a lot about what was proper in polite society from this show because my parents were not super attentive to those kinds of lessons. (laughs) Were they not? No, no. I learned a lot about how to behave through television. And Samantha was like one of my biggest icons about the way to behave. She is the picture of propriety. She is, and she charmingly and politely confronts situations that would today be considered clearly aggressive in just a very sophisticated kind of polite cocktail party way, Mm -hmm. um, which is very interesting. I guess the one thing about Samantha is that we know that she's never truly vulnerable. Yeah, it's true. She always has the upper hand in the situation, even when her aggressors, let's say Sheila, the ex-girlfriend in the first episode, or Rex, the very rapey aggressor in this episode, think that they have the upper hand, they are completely mistaken. And she is holding back until they force her hand. 
Exactly. And I think that's really a common theme. I think that's partly why as a little girl, Samantha was so empowering to me, why I just idolized her because she always has the upper hand. She holds back and doesn't necessarily use it. Oh, she's all about restraint, really. She could demolish her enemies if she wanted to. And when she's forced to exercise her true strength, she does so in a way that those receiving her ire absolutely deserve. Yes. But also there is that sense of comfort that she's never truly in any real danger. But that still becomes troubling when we're dealing with a real problem like sexual assault in this episode. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I was really surprised when I watched it because I definitely totally remember the episode and I happened to watch it just at a certain political point in our current culture and thinking about it, just wonder, for example, should we give our podcast audience trigger warnings before giving the, (laughs) uh, because of all the before giving the synopsis because of all the potential microaggressions that are occurring in this episode. I I, I hope that our audience is sophisticated enough to handle it. I hope so too. (laughs) But it is a real challenge to my feminist evolution to look at what I used to think and what I believe I looked at Samantha to, to understand how to handle men's advances Mm -hmm. with polite flirtatious evasion. She is smiling up until the very last moment. She is playful and coy about it. She really avoids hurting Rex's feelings and his ego as if that's anything worth protecting until the last possible moment. Yeah, let's be clear. Until Rex gets knocked out, Everybody considers Rex's feelings and ego paramount in this episode, except Endora, of course. Except Endora. Bless her heart. Yes. And eventually, Samantha sees the light on this as well. Still, the sense of priority is incredibly, horrifically skewed towards Darren's happiness, his welfare as a leader in the advertising world, and the importance of making sure that all those fragile male egos are left intact. So how should we pull this apart? There's something else that I want to mention very, very briefly here. It's interesting that a mid-60s episode of a TV show would feel so topical at this point. We're right before the presidential election, 2016. I recently rewatched a great film from the mid-60s called The Manchurian Candidate, that also had an incredibly relevant message. The message at the core of the Manchurian candidate is beware the person saying, I am the most patriotic, I am the most American. There is this entire conceit of 60s media challenging authority, this entire countercultural movement looking at people in power with great cynicism. And that is extended to something as demure as a sitcom about a witch housewife. No, I think that's really important. I agree with you that I was struck as I was sitting watching this episode by myself about how relevant it was. <laughs> Wait, to did you didn't you watch politics. it with your husband Brian? Oh, well, he's not <laughs> quite the fan that I am. Okay, very yeah. good. 
Or did you tell him about this episode? Oh, I told him about it. Okay, so, so he I, didn't actually... <laughs> right. No, I explained it. I, we were going out to dinner and I told him blow by blow the whole plot of the episode so that I could just exclaim about how rapey it was <laughs> and, and how amazed I was at the change in our culture. I mean, this, this sort of thing just uh can you imagine on a current television show that the rex barker would be going to jail right it would be like law and order and rex barker would be sentenced to a prison term for his serial rapey uh, advances toward women i love the fact that you are such a good storyteller that when i briefly spoke with brian about this episode he was incensed as if he had watched it <laughs> that that is great <laughs> great job uh, the second thing that I want to mention is something that aggravated me while watching this. Of course, this, like many period sitcoms, and honestly, like probably far too many sitcoms of today, has a lot of canned laughter. And the moments during which they chose to keep the canned laughter were horrifying. The scene where Rex corners Samantha in the gazebo, to their credit, they are having... Elizabeth Montgomery play out the physical discomfort of being trapped and being forced and grabbed several times. They play that very straight, but they have the canned laughter audience soundtrack play to the humor of the situation of which there is none except for maybe Rex's sly, slimy remarks as he is coming on to her. I, I was astonished at how out of step the directed humor of the situation was. Don't you think it's funny that she refers to him throughout this entire episode as Mr. Barker? Yes, it, it is extraordinarily respectful on her part. It just shows, again, her sense of propriety about everything. <sighs> Mr. Barker, don't you ever give up? I'm warning you, Mr. Barker, my husband is a very jealous man. Well, I don't blame him. I mean, so am I. Please, Mr. Barker. Mr. Barker, I'm warning you, if you don't get control of yourself, I'm going to do something drastic. Thomas? <laughs> uh, deferential till the very end. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, it's so, so sadly, weirdly, strangely funny how things have changed. And Dora constantly warns Samantha about the perils of the mortal world. And to be fair, there are lots of episodes that are devoted towards Endora scheming and plotting and setting up traps that are unfair to try to derail Samantha and Darren's marriage. But this is an instance where the mortal world really comes into play on its own without Endora's encouragement. And it is lousy. It is really lousy. Ever since I started rewatching the show, I was thrown back into the mindset of Mad Men. Because, of course, Darren is a Madison Avenue advertising executive at McMahon and Tate. There are small references here and there to what a man's world it is. And certainly before the end of the episode, you know, they offer Rex a drink from Darren's wet bar that's in his massive office. The world of business is, of course, a, a very kaleidoscopic version of it, but with men squarely in charge. The whole role of the wife in the landing of the account 
is very interesting because Larry Tate, as you remember in the beginning of the episode, talks about how Mr. Barker is likely to be swayed into signing with the agency after a lovely culinary experience and a nice brandy. And he looks at Darren kind of scoldingly and said, that is what he's going to get, isn't it? So Samantha definitely is under fire to prepare a dinner and drinks for this person in order to woo him into signing with this advertising agency, which I think is so hilariously 1964. It's so awful. (laughs) The pressure and expectation that's placed on her, she's more than window dressing. She is part of the equation of his ambition as a businessman. We should probably take a quick moment to talk about Larry Tate. Well, Larry Tate always is voicing the most base, capitalistic, misogynistic rhetoric. You know, that's like his role. And so, yeah, he comes full force in this one, just saying that Samantha better put out a nice dinner and a nice brandy for this fellow that's coming over. He practically pimps her out at that dinner party. It is painful. His wife is there. Samantha is getting a brandy for Louise Tate, who ends up becoming Samantha's best friend. But Larry treats Samantha like garbage. We are big fans of this show. But Larry, for me as a child, embodied everything that a terrible boss would be. He's a cheapskate. He's a skinflint. He is incredibly inappropriate at all times. (laughs) He's demanding. He's a slave driver. There's something extremely gregarious on the surface of all of that behavior. And every once in a while, he will throw a compliment to Darren as a bone. But he's a terrible, terrible boss. And a terrible person. (laughs) And a terrible person as well, yes. Just a a terrible person, yeah. As a child, I really admired Samantha and thought she was the best. I think we can agree that of... Any characters thus far presented, Samantha is the most beautiful, most sophisticated, most intelligent, most cultured. She beats everybody hands down. She's operating on a level above everyone else in the program. Yes. Yes. And yet at every moment, she is desperately insecure (laughs) about her ability to please these assholes. It's just, it's constant. It's really amazing. And that, again, probably influenced me as a, you know, if she's my idol, part of that is that you're always worried about making sure that you're making everybody else really happy. It's true. She is occupying this uncomfortable space where she is doing this perpetual balancing act between Endora's entreaties that she is living beneath her status and Darren's very, to be fair, now I feel like I'm echoing Endora, very grubby, materialistic, suburban, middle-class 1960s point of view. She is the only one who's looking at this entire situation with any sort of compassion and empathy from for both sides and having to inhabit this place that Nobody appreciates at all. Not only is she living beneath her status, as Endora would say, but I believe she's living beneath her substance. Oh, absolutely. The substance of her character just beats out everybody else. Yeah. 
Agreed, agreed. Really interesting. <laughs> so Rex comes in and Darren has to taste his baby food and he's just a weird dude from the beginning. He's just a committed contrarian and he thinks he's coming up with his own genius ideas on marketing, even though he's presumably hiring a marketing firm. Again, this is where we get into the very hazy space of how this is a world of business because, of course, most marketing companies have teams of developers working out scenarios. But of course, a lot of bewitched scenarios of business play out like uh, think tank sessions between two individuals where a client sort of comes up with the idea and Darren either shoots them down or makes it somehow more presentable. I was definitely kind of blown away by Darren's job. I have to say as a kid, as a artisty type person myself, I like to draw and I did then too as a kid, I was really into art and it just seemed like Darren sat around and thought about stuff and then drew big cartoons and it got his agency millions of dollars. It was really <laughs> quite glamorous to me. I definitely was taken by that at the time. I think I was as well, actually. It was an intriguing, appealing job. Yes, definitely. Except that you had to deal with Larry Tate as your boss. That slime bucket. He is a slime bucket. <laughs> He's just a horrible... He he often suggests that people sort of pretend or whatever, do things that are just totally marginally ethical in order to land the account. Well, he's... Somebody with no conviction either, he's always the guy who immediately agrees with a client. He is a spineless yes man when it serves his purpose. One of the few positive traits they show of Darren is standing up to the client and defending his opinion on their current ad campaign. Larry is such a jellyfish. Yeah, he totally just agrees with the client no matter what. Yeah. Exactly. He's, yeah. So let's talk about Rex Barker's girlfriend. Played by Grace Lee Whitney. Uh, clearly playing a bimbo. And there's several famous bimbos that appear on Bewitched over and over, which we'll see in later episodes. But she was one of the early ones. Grace Lee Whitney, who was yeoman Janice Rand on Star Trek, the original series. And here is quite glamorous. Uh, what I remember her from Star Trek for was having these extraordinarily complicated beehive hairdos. Very few stories revolved around her. She was always like a special guest star. You know, it's funny that you use the word glamorous because I would attribute some a little more depth to glamour, but maybe that's wrong. She's beautiful and youthful, gorgeous, I would say, but she's so vacuous. Oh, yeah. She is uh, cheerfully empty-headed. Yes. Doesn't seem to be bothered at all by the disappearance of her date halfway through the evening. Well, he's a cad. She's, yeah. she, she mentions that she's accustomed to him abandoning her mid-date on a regular basis and having to drive herself home. And when she picks up the dog, she says very provocatively that she loves the scruffy little fellow with the cold, wet nose. <laughs> Which I thought was a just really kind of grody sexual innuendo in the whole I, deal. I, this, this points to my incredibly innocent take on it. I didn't even think about that at all. <laughs> but <laughs> Now that I say it, it does, yeah, it resonates, doesn't it? The, yep, the cold, wet nose. A bit, yes. Uh, I'm uncomfortable now. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, isn't he cute? <laughs> yes, you might, you shaggy little devil with that cold, wet nose. <laughs> Did 
adorable. I'd like to take him home with me. Why don't you? What is he yours? I'm kind of going character by character, but Endora in this episode is, as usual, fantastic. She always is. She comes in at the point at which Samantha has been totally abandoned by her spouse. She nails the situation. Totally. Precisely. And doesn't even linger around to take any pleasure from Darren's comeuppance or the fact that she's completely right. We talked about this a little offline, but Samantha's magic is always kind of harmless, but Endora's magic is a little bit more dangerous. Indeed. So she conjures up what Samantha describes as a mountain lion, although in pictures it doesn't look like a mountain lion. But Samantha says that this mountain lion could tear Mr. Barkley apart in his dog form. And Endora is like, so be it. Just so portends the sensibility of our modern age about the despicable Rex Barker. She is giving him his just desserts. There is a millisecond of footage where it looks like there might be a mountain lion attacking a small dog. I suspect that it was only a tiny fragment because that dog did not come to a good end. (laughs) Probably so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But... You got to love Endora in this whole scenario. Absolutely. It's not a situation of her making, but I feel like she actually responds to it appropriately. (laughs) I do too. A brief moment to talk about wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Always important with Samantha. Her cocktail gown was adorable. (laughs) Describe it, please. It was a green, possibly taffeta gown that was a tight bodice with an A-line skirt, straps, She looked gorgeous in it. Uh, It was kind of an emerald green color, shimmery. She has her hair up, which is not a normal look that we see for her. It's very, very elegant. She looks very sophisticated. Between the first episode and this third episode, we've seen her a couple of ways. With her hair down, also with her hair in a ponytail when she's cleaning or working around the house. She looks glamorous every which way. But this is a new look for her, which is the formal Samantha. And she looks absolutely ravishing. And I have to point out the delectable negligee with the robe over it that she is wearing during the whole chase scene when she chases after Mr. Barker, who none of us at that point watching, at least in the modern age, cared that she go rescue that scoundrel. But she went out to rescue the dog because he ran away. And the police had to stop her and said she was so indecent in her robe. (laughs) (laughs) which was extremely modest but very glamorous and beautiful white flowing kind of uh, again multi-layered silky nightgown samantha and darren are living in a suburb of new york city somewhere in connecticut doesn't it feel like the two policemen who stop samantha because they feel she is indecently dressed in her voluminous billowing robe is just an extension of all the male patriarchy in this episode. It's just one more thing that guys are just pushing and pushing their dominance and their discomfort onto poor Samantha. Yeah, what's funny is that she, and I remember thinking this even as a little girl, that I was wondering, like, why doesn't she just, you know, turn them into rats or something? Like, (laughs) she doesn't have to have to be pulled back into that squad car and escorted home. She really doesn't need to do that. No. But she does. Ridiculous. 
I know that you are an extreme fan of the design and style of Bewitched, but on some level, I feel like TV, if even in the mid-60s, was having a hard time catching up with style. To some degree, the home, the furnishings, some of the clothes, but certainly the attitudes are a carryover of the 1950s, which is a period of such towering dullness. The bikini was already on the scene, but TV itself is having a hard time catching up and being relevant. The men are all wearing appropriate suits and skinny ties. They are dressed as you would expect a Madison Avenue admin to be dressed. Some of uh, Samantha's clothes are beautiful and contemporary for that time, but the mores are still so 50s. That's really true. I think that in Bewitched, I was charmed a lot by seeing snippets of really modern, forward-thinking aesthetics. So I think the aesthetics of the opening animation sequence are fantastic. I love that. Mm -hmm. I still love that. I still think it's kind of a timeless, beautiful animation sequence. It feels modern even now. Mm -hmm. I think that the furnishings in their house... And various other things are a little stodgy, actually. A little bit. Yeah. and But I think also that Samantha, and this gets uh, to be a big theme late, later on, she's not a bikini-wearing beatnik. She's a socialite. You know, as a witch, they portray her as, as a high-class socialite, someone who went to finishing school, who speaks fluent French, you know, who is really part of the snobby intelligentsia. Obviously, she's not immortal, but this is this imaginary upper crust that we could never touch, but that she was part of and that she chose to come down to the real world to be with slobs like us, you know, in a way. <laughs> that's that's the ambiance kind of around Samantha. And so I think you're right that a lot of things aren't as forward, but to me, she's very effective as a person out of place in that setting that way. The other shows that premiered that year were Adam's Family, The Munsters, Gilligan's Island. None of those shows feel especially 60s to me. I think it's maybe later when shows start focusing on teenagers, like The Patty Duke Show or like Gidget, that TV begins to catch up a little bit with rock and roll and the slang of the time and the sense of what youth culture was really about. But we're dealing with adults on this show and not teenagers. And so it would make sense that there would still be a carryover of 1950s propriety and expectations and conceptions of success and the trappings of wealth and prosperity. It's funny because as we progress in the series, and I haven't rewatched later episodes, but my recollection of later episodes, I think it's probably always going to seem like that youthful, whatever rebellious youthful thing is going on is seen through a very stodgy, older generation lens. And I think really what attracted me to Samantha has a lot to do with her upper crust credentials, with her highly intelligent, very well-educated debutante Jackie Onassis thing that was very 
attractive to me as a young child in the 60s. But that is also full of generosity and warmth. She's a good guy, for sure. A good guy that has those qualities. It wasn't that she was saying, I'm your better. And she also wasn't saying, well, screw you, Darren. I'm going to be a hippie. Serena does that a little bit later on, and Serena, we'll see some of that. But again, it's always kind of through the lens of how a stodgy older person might have perceived that kind of rebellion. Do you want to take a quick moment and talk about who Serena is before we... Uh... Oh, sorry. Serena is Samantha's identical twin cousin. Who is played by Elizabeth Montgomery wearing a black wig. Yes, exactly. So she's <laughs> like just just a Samantha, only a wild, witchy version. She's like Samantha if Samantha hadn't adopted the mores of in the mortal world, if she'd gone on to be a witch who just enjoyed the hedonistic pleasures of being a witch. And it's probably worth mentioning here as well that I Dream of Jeannie, which was a fast imitator of Bewitched, also did the same thing and had poor Barbara Eden throw on a black Elvira wig and play her own evil cousin. Are you a fan (laughs) of I Dream of Jeannie? I, I think I liked it as a kid, not as much as Bewitched, to be sure, but I definitely liked Larry Hagman more than I liked Dick York. That is really interesting. We're going to get into some serious discussions about that because obviously I wanted to be Samantha. I did not want to be Jeannie. Jeannie was dumb and she was naive and sweet. Her morals were admirable and all that stuff, but she was not a sophisticate like Samantha is. I would completely agree with that. There was on I Dream of Jeannie... A nice dynamic between Larry Hagman and his best friend. uh, Major Healy. Major Healy, who was really (laughs) like the Barney Rubble of that show. Yeah. And that very sophisticated psychiatrist, Dr. Bellows. Oh, I did like Bellows, I have to say. Weirdly, it's the reverse of Bewitched for me. I loved the male dynamic on... I Dream of Jeannie, and Barbara Eden pretty much left me cold. But on Bewitched, the only reason to watch it was for Endora and for Samantha. And Aunt Clara. And Aunt Clara, who we're <laughs> going to get to very soon because she joins the family very shortly. Weirdly, for I Dream of Jeannie, I feel like they're inverted. I think I Dream of Jeannie just felt more, for some whatever reason, more misogynistic right up front to me. I get there's a lot of misogyny in Bewitched, but I wasn't repelled by it in the same way that I was at times with I Dream of Jeannie. It'll be interesting revisiting it. I I feel like the men are powerless in both. Yeah, in a way, in a way. Really? Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see how we... <laughs> We're, it's going to be a complete reevaluation because I've not seen I Dream of Jeannie in many, many, many years. So in my basement, I have a painting that was on the wall of one of the sets of I Dream of Jeannie. Okay, bragging rights. That's I fantastic. Know, I know, but it was... I mean, it's a mass market painting, so I'm sure I don't have the actual one, but it is. You can find it on I Dream of Jeannie on YouTube. Can you describe it? Some very stylized 1970s horses on a red background. They're horse shapes with some bold patterns in them. It's super 1972 mass market 
oil painting. We're going to go ahead and post this photograph of this artwork on our webpage so that listeners can take a look. It's pretty cool. So I want to get back to the episode, and we probably should talk about this at the end of every episode. Can we forgive Darren? (laughs) Can you forgive Darren? Darren's behavior, which is never great, is so unconscionably selfish in this episode. Darren has, of course, an out-of-nowhere sort of a deus ex machina turnabout at the very end of the episode where he is given the opportunity to punch the client in the face, make things right, but almost uncomfortably at the same time, the client is also given a turnabout where he says, ah, well, I respect Darren for having done this. You guys get the account anyway, and we're all good. I feel like the men in this episode are given a really queasy pass that they do not earn at all. And Samantha's outrage is never really given the respect or attention it deserves. So I'm really hung up on the thing with Darren where he doesn't have to believe what Samantha says. He only has to believe when he sees with his own eyes that this man is sexually assaulting his wife. And then everyone forgives him for having doubted Samantha in the first place. I just leaves me cold in, you know, 2016. Earlier in the episode, when Samantha is trying to explain to him what happened, he indignantly says to her, well, you are just my wife and he is my livelihood. Well, so maybe he had a few too many. Any common, ordinary wife would know how to handle it, but not you. No, you had to turn him into an animal. Well, he behaved like an animal. He grabbed me and tried to bite me. Yeah. I'm so darn concerned about him. What about me? Well, what about you? You're just a wife. He's a livelihood. And that's all you care about? Yes. You don't bounce back from saying something like that, no matter what act of chivalry, no matter if you're Sir Galahad and you punch the guy in the face later, Darren's outrage becomes real when he witnesses it. But Samantha's retelling of it should be enough. And the fact that he said that horrible thing, ugh, unforgivable. So gross. And I don't know if you remember, but having watched like four times getting ready for the episode for the first episode... There is a time when she's proving to him that she's a witch, that he says he's from Missouri. It's the show me state. Indeed, indeed. I remember that. Yeah. And so he says, you have to show me. He doesn't say that again now, but it certainly is part of Darren's character that's consistent, that he doesn't believe what Samantha says. He frequently doesn't believe what she says. He needs to see it for himself. And when he does see it for himself and responds the way that's chivalrous, then suddenly we as the audience are meant to forgive him and realize why Samantha is so in love with him. At this point, I'm with Endora. When I think of what she could have had. Oh, when I think what you could have had, I get positively ill. I have to say, as a grown-up woman, I think the same way right now about poor Samantha. And to be honest, it's not even redemptive. Darren's act of chivalry in the end is its own brand of sexism. It's its own sexist assertion. <laughs> it's it, none of the, no part of this episode is good. We are big fans of this show, but no part of this episode is good, but it is rife for conversation. 
I think of it actually as a fantastic episode because it totally made me want to talk about it. I mean, <laughs> it is, it really challenges a lot about what I think about the show and why I was such a fan and just how I looked at Samantha as an idol and how I learned to treat men that were gross. That kind of charming repartee, I think, is what I was taught in the 1960s about how to treat men that were gross. I think it would be fun to sort this podcast by theme in some ways, because I think this is not the last time that we're going to confront this issue of just total crazy misogyny that we can't reconcile now in our 19... <laughs> or I'm sorry, in our 21st century minds, it just, it, it's too bizarre. But this will come up over and over again. Absolutely. And I do think that we should continue to talk about our level of ability to forgive Darren. Unforgivable. Unforgivable, most in my opinion. Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time, he just doesn't deserve her. Sometimes he gets tortured a little bit, which is possibly gonna make us feel better i don't know <laughs> <laughs> all right well i hear the music so that means that it's time for us to sign off before we go we'd like to remind you to continue this conversation on our forums and to follow us on facebook and twitter and instagram and, of course, to buy our T-shirts and uh, merchandise. And, of course, to listen to other shows in the Piwacket Network. Listen to A Breed Apart with Dr. Kate and Stephen. If you're a fan of horror movies, be sure to listen to The Brothers Grimmer. Until next time. Until next time. Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered is a production of the Piwacket Podcast Network. Our opening song is sung by Melissa Arning. A special thanks to Melissa for letting us use it. <laughs>